Hi, I'm Deb. This is Frankie V. I'm Grant. Hi, this is Phil. I'm Aaron. I'm Steven. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Matt. We're Tim and Terry. I'm Susan. Hi, this is Phil. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. It's easy. Just visit supportseminarydropout.com. Just go to supportseminarydropout.com. And I'm your host, Shane Blackshear. Interviews with leading Christian authors, leaders, and thinkers. Let's go. John H. Walton, thanks for being on the podcast today. You're quite welcome. Glad to be here. For those who don't know, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, you know your, your resume, as it were? Sure. So I've, I'm an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College. I've been here 22 years. Before that, I taught at Moody Bible Institute for 20 years. So that kind of frames my career. Uh, I've, I was raised in a Christian home, uh, did my master's degree in Old Testament at Wheaton, and did my PhD at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, thanks for being with me. I've wanted to talk with you for a while. You are... I'm one of the preeminent Old Testament scholars. You've got a new book out. Got it right here. Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. Um, I I wonder if it would be okay. This is one of my favorite things to do, being a a podcast host, is just playing Ask the Expert. And so I thought if it's okay, if I can just do some – Ask the Old Testament expert with you today, and I think that we might we might touch on what the book is actually about too it, within those questions. Now, I've got some specific questions about the book too, just to to warn you. But yeah, if we can just get my my weird Old Testament questions out of the way first, and then go from there, I'll that's give it right. a try. Okay, all right. Well, my my first one is let's start at the very beginning. What are the origins of Yahweh? Where does where does Israel start interacting with Yahweh, and and how does this all come about? And there's probably a lot to unpack there, but I want to I want to hear what you have to say about that. Well, basically, what I have to say is I wish I knew. There are plenty of theories out there, but most of the theories suffer from the lack of hard evidence. Uh, the scholars who work with it uh, pick a little piece here, pick a little piece there, a little bit of archaeology, a little bit of a redaction criticism and try to piece something together. But I think that the conclusions remain uh, something that's a little bit elusive. And so at this point, I'm not sure that we can make a statement about that. Uh, the fact that we have Yahweh occurring in the early pages of Genesis uh, could mean something, but it means less if Genesis is given a later date for being um, composed and we don't have firm information on that. Uh, the, uh, the use of personal names can contribute to the discussion. We don't really have personal names in the Bible using the Yahweh element until we get past the time of Moses. Uh, that may or may not be significant. Uh, there are a number of very good books on it. One just came out by Michael Hunley called Yahweh Among the Gods. And I think that gives excellent coverage to the many different ways to think about it. I've been, just some context for that question, I've been very interested as of late in the kind of questions like that that we often don't talk about in the church setting. And often what happens is someone 
is a Christian. Maybe they grew up in church, maybe not, but they have this church background and, you know, maybe they're taught a kind of literal seven day creation and then taught to believe the Adam and Eve stories uh, literal or maybe even not. But then later on, they come across, you know, maybe it's something on social media or maybe it's an article online about something like the origins on Yahweh. And that could be really distressing for people. Like, what are you talking about? Yahweh was eternal. Uh, Or, you know, the origins of Yahweh were creating Adam and Eve, you know? And uh, it's those kind of questions that I'm really curious about to talk more about uh, you know, in those settings at church and even with, with my kids and in family so that it's not a huge surprise later on that they that they don't inc- encounter something that they've never thought of before, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to talk about the history of Yahweh as Yahweh, uh, but if we're talking about the history of Yahweh as he was encountered and came to be known by that name, by the Israelites, that becomes a different sort of question. I think the reason why we don't talk about it in churches or much in Bible studies or things like that is because there's still so much that's speculative and to probe into it means really getting into very deep weeds very quickly. And therefore it's kind of beyond uh, the, the ability or the willingness of a lay audience to try to grasp it all. Yeah. Well, and we're trying to recover things that are very ancient, you know? Um, so along these same lines, here's here's another loaded question. Uh, did God in the Old Testament have a wife, Dr. Walton? <laughs> in the Old Testament, no, certainly not. Um, whether in some Israelite understandings he may have done so, uh, that's certainly one of the options out there on the table because we have uh, inscriptional material that may be read that way. So it's possible that in actual Israelite history, as they struggled with some of the ideas that are normative in Old Testament, but as they struggled with them, it wouldn't be surprising if they at times configured Yahweh as having a consort. But that's not in the Old Testament. That's the Israelites trying to cope with changing their viewpoints on things as God reveals things to them. So do you think, do you think that that, if that happened with that tradition, do you think that's, would, would that have been edited out of the Old Testament or maybe happened in the intertestamental period or like, what are you, which do you, when did that happen? The Old Testament doesn't spend a lot of space trying to talk about the specifics of Israelite beliefs when they were not lining up with what the Old Testament is teaching. They mentioned certainly that they follow the bales and things like that uh, under every green tree on every high hill. But those are very general nebulous statements, and they don't spend any time going into precisely what was the nature of their uh, apostasy. Uh, So uh, I don't think it's a matter of things being edited out. I think it's a matter of they were never included as fitting within the directions that the uh, authors were taking. I gotcha. So generally when people talk about this, uh, they look at, I hear two things referenced. One is inscriptions to something like uh, Yahweh and his wife Asherah or something like that. And then there's also references to second Kings, which is interesting because when I go to those, 
it seems clear to me that they're ref- the, the at least the text for itself take it for what it is is referring to throwing out pagan gods out of the temple not like a uh like a normative Israel is worshiping this person alongside them uh but that something from the outside has gotten in the temple it feels like that's how it's framed in the scripture that's typically how it's presented Again, we really have a great deal of difficulty reconstructing the nature or extent of whatever syncretism or apostasy they might have been engaged in, because it's just not the Bible's intention to document that. It's not documenting the the varied trails that they followed in their ignorance or unbelief. It's trying to document something about Yahweh and true belief. Mm. And so I guess, you know, pastorally, I think one of my concerns is, especially a lot of the skeptics who bring this up, they kind of bring it up to say, see, this all this all this was made up all along. You know, uh, we, you know, you don't think Asherah is real, but Yahweh was right there with Asherah. And, you know, it became politically inviable for whatever reason for God to have a wife. So they just took her out. And so I wonder, you know, especially I know that you – some of your teaching includes uh, undergrads, and I'm wondering, you know, pastorally, how do you help and walk students through kind of those kind of difficult questions? You know, when I teach undergrads, I'm not teaching history of Israelite religion. Okay, I'm fair. Teaching, uh, you know, Old Testament interpretation and literature, and so we don't take that route on things. Still, occasionally the questions come up, but I think the the kind of direction you've just represented that you've summarized. Uh, is accurate that people talk that way, but it's so highly speculative at every turn. How do you document that they took something out unless you can document that it was in? And the inscriptions, the the very few inscriptions we have making fairly vague suggestions hardly give a basis for saying, oh, and everybody thought Yahweh had a consort. You know, it's just not sufficient evidence for that. Um, I'm... I try to be very careful about speculation, whether it's in my favor or not. That that's just not how we build cases. So, but often uh, skeptics on the one hand and apologists on the other hand are not necessarily careful about the nature of the evidence and how firm it is. And I think that's unfortunate. So, in this book, it's the practices and or principles and practices of Old Testament interpretation. Uh, I like how you arrange the book because it's got it's like sections, but also I guess you could kind of say they're chapters, but there's like forty of them, and each one is a a principle or a practice. It really makes the book really readable, being set up that way. Um, what like how would you explain why do we need specific principles and practices for the Old Testament that's not this, how is this different from, say, you know, a Gordon Fee's reading the Bible for all it's worth, or like Scott McKnight's a blue parakeet, or something like that? That's for principles for reading the entire Bible. Why does the Old Testament need its own principles and practices? Yeah, well, in in many ways it overlaps uh, with some of those books. Um, one or two of the principles that I list are ones that I specifically say these were talked about in Fee and Stewart's. Uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. That was an important book early in my career. And so there's no surprise that there's overlap between them. Uh, One of the differences is that even though I arrange some of the chapters in terms of Pentateuch or 
narrative literature or wisdom, etc. Uh, this book is not intended to be in any way a comprehensive uh, approach to interpretation. So basically, the the way the book developed, deep secrets here, the way <laughs> the book developed uh, is that over the years of teaching, I started to find what I called sound bites. You know, just a pithy little saying that captured something important about interpretation, an important insight. Uh, the one I'm best well known for is the Bible is written for us, but not to us. Just a pithy little sound bite that captures a principle that we can then unpack a little bit. Um, well, over the years of teaching, I developed several dozen of these. And as I teach through Old Testament, I pull them out at the right time and say, okay, so uh, prophetic literature is more about revealing God than about revealing the future. You know, just something of that sort. Um, that we receive the messages of narrative literature, not from the characters, but from the narrator. So all these little sound bites were things that I found useful ways of getting across important points to the students I was teaching. And finally, I said, you know, I've got enough of these. I could just build a book around them. So originally, I called them sound bites, but neither neither my friends who were reading it nor the, the publishers reading it thought that sound bites quite captured it or gave it the gravitas that it, that it needed. So we looked for another way to talk about it. But that's basically most of those chapters are just those pithy little sayings that give us insight into the different kinds of literature that we have. I mean, I think I agree with your publisher on that, that it's a little <laughs> bit more than I, I understand how you got there. Um, but because, you know, I get the, I can I, I really see it in the each of the principles but as I was reading, I was thinking, yeah, when all of these are compiled together, you have a really good hermeneutic for reading the Old Testament. Um, one of the ones that you say early on, one of the principles is that it can't mean what it never meant. And you, which you said, you want, I think that came from Gordon Fee, uh, the reading the Bible for all it's worth, I think is where yep. that came from. It's that's one of those things that's been repeated so many times. I can't remember where it first came from. Cause it's so good. You know, um, I think kind of intuitively that makes sense to us. Um, this idea that especially with the old Testament, we can't put a meaning on it that the original authors didn't intend. Now, this gets really complicated when we go to the New Testament and the writer of Hebrews, the uh, in, in Hebrews and in Corinthians, uh, they're looking at the Psalms and saying, you know, this is about Jesus. Um, so what, what, what do we do with that? How can it, how can it mean that if it never meant that? Well, and that's exactly what I have to unpack in that chapter and in other parts of the book. Uh, how do we talk about what the New Testament does with the Old Testament? Uh, do we look to the New Testament to provide us hermeneutical models for understanding the Old Testament? If we do that, how do we, f how do we have controls? You, you might have seen that that's one of the major things that I stress in terms of hermeneutical method. We need to be consistent and we need to have controls. And if we don't, we can end up in really bad places. Uh, so that's part of unpacking that particular saying uh, that it can never mean what it never meant. 
And of course, the way that I do it, just in summary for the people listening, the way that I do that is say it, it, it can never mean what it never meant. Yet what the New Testament authors do is they're not interpreting what the text meant in the Old Testament. They are rather uh, appropriating it, redirecting it, all kinds of words you could use uh, as part of an application process uh, to speak to their day. And that's a different different undertaking. And in that sense, we have to think about how they do that, but they're not interpreting the text. They're doing something else with it. And what they do with it is fine, but then we get to the question of, are we able to imitate that? And my basic answer is no, we're not, because if we try, we have no controls. Um, once you try to take that method and do it with the text they didn't do it on, how does anybody verify that, validate it, falsify it, agree with it or disagree with it? If it's just, well, this is what I think, and that becomes a problematic approach to interpretation. I mean, the reason I wrote this book, you asked, the reason I wrote this is because we really need to interpret the Old Testament better. There's an awful lot of mistakes that we make because we don't know what we're doing. When we read the Old Testament, we don't know how to read it. We don't know how it's God's word. We don't know how to approach it. And history is littered with people who have made really messy things out of the Old Testament and, and then gone forward in the name of God. Yeah. And so on the, so this is a related question then, and probably one you get a lot, which is how do we then, if we are New Testament people, uh, how do we responsibly preach out of the Old Testament? And, and how do we, in, in a way, um, you know, you also, the, the, the other problem is you've got Jesus telling the Pharisees, the Old Testament's all about me. It, it's all points to me. Um, so how, how do we responsibly preach through the Old Testament in a way that is uh, faithful to Jesus, but also uh, doesn't make it mean what it never meant? I use terminology, which is fairly recent in its development, uh, the distinction between Christocentric and Christotelic. Uh, Christocentric is a, a view that says every passage is about Jesus. And if preaching is truly Christocentric, they would say you really can't preach an Old Testament passage until you preach Jesus. And in that case, it has nothing to do with what the authors intended. Now, to me, the problem with that is that you are overriding something that has authority with something else that may have authority. But if we lose out on any of the authoritative teaching that God has given us, we're missing out on something. So I feel like we have to do what I call Christotelic, and that is we read text in context first. What's the author's intentions in the Old Testament context? What's his message? What is he getting at? That's authoritative word of God, that's scripture. Once we do that, then we try to ask, so how is this pushing us toward Christ? How is this moving us toward God's plans and purposes being accomplished in Jesus Christ? Uh, I view the Old Testament as really revealing to us God's plans and purposes. And that's what we track in the Old Testament. And we eventually recognize that it's driving us to Jesus. They didn't know that, but we can study it in that regard. But we can study it in steps. And so we start by understanding what the Old Testament message was. And that way we uh, fulfill our responsibility, our obligation, our accountability to the Old Testament authors as those who have given us an inspired word of God. 
And so that's how I would say as Christians, we do justice to it. We, uh, we reflect our accountability to the authority of the text at every level that it has authority. And so we start text in context but we don't neglect how this drives us to Jesus and then how it drives us to certain ideas theologically. Uh, that's all part of a process. And I don't want to eliminate the early parts of the process just by overlaying the latter parts on it, whether it's theology or whether it's Christology specifically. Can you, do you have a, an example offhand, I mean, a Bible story that people are pretty familiar with in the Old Testament and how maybe how that gets preached and jumps ahead and skips over that first part that you're talking about and how it could be done better? Well, sure, it happens all the time. And of course, I've got examples all the way through the book to develop the, the different ideas. You know, we can talk about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And if all you're interested in about is the heart of God and how he, he gave up his son for us, I mean, he did, and that's wonderful. Um, but is that really why that story is in the Old Testament? Is that what's going on in Genesis? And I think we have to do our due diligence and do justice to the authority of Genesis as a text on its own uh, before we start trying to figure out what that might mean for Christ. And so it's certainly an interesting reflection that God in the end did not ask Abraham to get up, give up his son, yet he in the end was willing to give up his son. That's an interesting reflection. But even there, it's not one that the New Testament makes. So it's one that does not come with authority, the authority of inspiration. It's one that comes out of our imagination, and maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not, but it's not the same thing as saying, and this is the authority of God. So that's an example. Um, with Jonah, of course, we could talk about what's going on in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, in the Old Testament. Uh, but then we have a totally different discussion when we talk about how Jesus uses Jonah, whether it's his, uh, or what it might be. Uh, those are those are New Testament questions that in effect how Jesus was using the story, not trying to interpret it, but using it. And I think we have to make that, draw that distinction. You have this uh, t terms that you use in the book about reference versus affirmation. When, when, the, when the scriptures reference something versus affirm it, um, is that, would that kind of be the same dynamic as prescriptive versus descriptive. I think some of us may be familiar with that kind of dynamic going on. Are you referring to the same thing or is that a little bit different? I think they're very similar, very similar terms. Um, in the end, uh, when my son and I wrote several books together, he kind of persuaded me to use those terms, reference and affirmation, instead of uh, descriptive and prescriptive because there are, I think there are a lot of variations between Okay, uh, description and prescription are very specific kinds of terms. And I think reference and affirmation are larger terms. Uh, there are things that could be referenced that aren't just description, there, there are other things. But so I think reference and affirmation maybe can serve um, in a more, uh, in a better, broadly speaking, context. So a lot of the a lot of the hangups that people have in the Old Testament is because they don't they're not grasping the the reference what's reference and what's affirmations in other words like uh, for example it's a a very um, it's a very uh, misogynistic culture right. uh, the background uh, this is not the same as the Bible affirming that um, right. or or paternalistic or 
um, and on and on and on. I mean, it goes, it's a long list of things right. that the Bible is acknowledging exist in the culture, but not affirming it. Right. Tassels on your garments, prohibition of pork. You know, the, these are all things that the Bible is giving reference to in the Israelite covenant context, but they're not things that are the affirmations of if you are going to be a good follower of God, you need to do these things or think this way. Well, so that leads me to something else that I thought was interesting. One of the, the quotes you have, I think is chapter 21 or, or principle 21. We cannot cite any given provision of the Torah and claim that this is God's authoritative command, command to us. And that includes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Um, I think a lot of times we encounter this question in, in church as, are we supposed to follow the rules of the, of the Old Testament? Um, and, and it's funny that I feel like there's not a large agreement on that, on the answer to that question, which I think is kind of weird, you know? Well, you know, my son and I wrote a whole book on that topic, Lost World of the Torah. And so we explored lots of those topics there. But again, this is an area where people have strong feelings about the things they feel strongly about. But where are the controls? Where's the consistency? You know, you can step up and say, well, you know, the, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, you know, that's, that's law to us. Okay, why is that and not something else law to you? That's part of the same covenant that wearing tassels on your garment and not eating pork. So how do you decide which ones you are saying, oh, that's law that we have to do and which ones are not? And if you, if you can't work that out consistently, then you have, you have no hermeneutic controls for what you're doing. And I think one of the things that we have to, to recognize is that we use a criteria for deciding that. We say, oh, well, this one is one that still stands and this one's not. How do you know? And it ends up being, well, what means, what's sensible to us? Right, right. At which point we're setting ourselves up as the authority rather than God's word. We have to have a hermeneutical approach that is consistent. Yeah, I think we also, we hear that vocalized something as like, well, it's a, there's the moral law and there's a ceremonial law, but, and I want to know what you think about that. It seems to me like those are harder to delineate than we give credit to. Absolutely. We have a whole chapter on that in the Lost World of the Torah, uh, basically saying this just doesn't cut it because we're the ones making up which ones are which based on what we think is sensible or not. Well, and, yeah. I was going to say, uh, my, my friend AJ Swoboda wrote a book about Sabbath and you taught, you know, you said like the 10 commandments are big ones for people, except when they're not, except when it's the Sabbath, you know, exactly. <laughs> not even the 10, you can't even stick to the 10. Right. Right. I really love the way you talked about the Torah and, and that, that we go straight to the translation of what the word Torah means is law, but maybe there's more of a, a connotation of instruction Mm -hmm. And that really reframes things. And so I wonder if you can unpack that for us a little bit. If it's more instruction than law, what, what does that do? Does it, is it not as absolute even for Israel at the time? Or it seems like we just kind of need to rearrange the mental furniture about the way we think about the Torah and, and the law, the quote unquote law. I had one colleague when I said, you know, th these are never called the 10 commandments. 
Um, and maybe we're not reading them kind of with the right sense of what they are. And his response was, so are you saying they're the 10 suggestions? And no, no, I'm not. Um, so I've treated them as, as wisdom, again, based on the idea that Torah often refers to instruction and that when Israel is told how they were to respond to Torah, we can look all over the place and our translations say they're supposed to obey. But the Hebrew phrase is to give heed to. Uh, there is no Hebrew word for obey. It's to listen to, to give heed to, to preserve. Uh, and all of those are important things that you do with wisdom. Uh, it's, it's not as if commandments are the only thing that carry a mandate. Wisdom carries a mandate, but it's a different sort. When we read Proverbs, we don't say, I'm going to obey the Proverbs. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. Yet Proverbs are called Torah. <laughs> and so when we respond to Proverbs, we respond by taking it to heart, by heeding it, by living by it, because that's what you do with wisdom. Not only are Proverbs referred to as Torah, but Deuteronomy, the Torah is referred to as wisdom. And so no surprise that the Israelites are, are expected to be responsive to it. Again, it's not just narrowly within the idea of obeying commands. It's very specifically in the idea of taking all of this to heart and living by it. And I think that gives us a lot better perspective on understanding what kind of material we have there. You know, I was reading your uh, book about the flood in the Lost, Lost World series, <clears throat> and I thought it was really, really good and really helpful. Uh, I, was, I was listening to the audio book, actually, and my wife was, you know, asking why I was, why that specifically I was listening to. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what to do with this. Like, I have some things I don't think that the story's doing, but I don't know exactly to say what it is. And so my understanding of what your position is, is that um, there probably was some kind of actual localized flood in memory of the people, that cultures were writing their own narratives about this flood, that the the f narrative that we have in the Bible uh, about Noah and his family is full of uh, hyperbole. That's a big, a big word that you're into and <laughs> you unpack a little bit in this new book as well. Um, but that the focus is to um, talk about the character of God, the, 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 and specifically comparing the, the way God reacts to the way that other deities react in other literature at the time, other flood literature at the time. What did I get wrong there? <laughs> okay. So uh, even though it may very well have been to some degree regional, I prefer to talk about as a massive catastrophic event. Uh, and, and because that way you don't even have to talk about what the geographical range may or may not have been. It's a massive catastrophic event. Uh, and again, the Bible, as I would say, is not trying to reveal um, geographic or geological or hydrological kinds of details to satisfy our apologetic itches. It's there to answer the question, why would God do such a thing? 
And so in that sense, it's very strictly theological, not scientific. Uh, it has a different explanation in Genesis than what you'd find in the ancient Near East. And that's the subversive nature of Genesis, that it's, that it's doing that. And that it's really trying to, to give us an idea of how God has worked out bringing order in the world from creation through the flood, through Tower of Babel, all the way up to, uh, to the covenant, which is God's instrument for order. So it's doing something different than what we often think about. It's doing something deeply theological uh, rather than giving us something to test our scientific oats on. And so in that sense, I think that we often do it in injustice because we try to do something with it that it is not trying to do. The hyperbole issue, uh, it, it's just an issue of, uh, we try to demonstrate that in the Bible, they use universalistic language rhetorically. We give plenty of examples and we suggest that this could possibly be, we don't know if it is, but it could possibly be an example of such rhetorical universalistic language. So this gets back to, the point is the, the literary meaning, like the literary direction that it's going. If we read the flood narrative and what we take away is that this is history, we miss the point. Um, and, and if we go and we try to recreate the ark somewhere in Kentucky or whatever, uh, it's, we've completely missed the point because it's the literary focus that, that should be intact. And one thing, when I was reading the book, I thought, um, I was a little bit confused because you, you rightly took issue with people who were trying to make the narrative about a regional flood. And the narrative of the flood story in the Bible does not leave room for it being a regional flood. In, in other words, the story is about a flood that floods the whole earth. And so people who are trying to reconcile this with history know that there's not evidence or nor would it probably be possible for a worldwide flood. So they're trying to say this is actually about a regional flood. The text doesn't allow that. Uh, but it's tricky because there probably was an actual regional flood that people were basing these stories off of. Am I getting that right? Well, the point that you're making, I think, is correct, that from a literary standpoint, uh, it's, it's the overwhelming massive nature of the catastrophe that's, that's the point. So they're, that's why they're using universalistic language, because it wants to talk about the universal impact. Uh, so in, in that sense... Yeah, they're not just trying to describe a universal flood any more than Zephaniah 1 is trying to describe just a little minor um, um, campaign of the Babylonians against Jerusalem that destroys it and takes some captives. Uh, Zephaniah 1 paints that all as a universal cosmic catastrophe. And that's because it wants you to understand it as a universal cosmic catastrophe, even though, of course, in reality, it was a very focused regional event. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it, from what I understand, people at the time that this was written probably would have had a societal understanding that at some point in the past, there was this big flood that was really catastrophic that actually happened. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of similar. Like we would like, we all kind of know that like a while back, a few planes flew into these towers in New York city. 
that's like a collective understanding we have. Now we could go and tell a fantastical story about it to illustrate some other point. Um, and so perhaps that's kind of how it worked with the flood. Again, the further away you get from events, the more they become incorporated into collective memory, they take on a significance that every culture and every generation will find ways to communicate. And that, that's, that's how those things operate. Um, I, this comes into one of, the, one of the chapters in the book we're talking about here, the uh, Wisdom for Faithful Reading, uh, where I said we really can't begin to understand a text historically until we understand it literarily. Yeah. And that, that's true of the flood as well. What do you do in general with the, the classic kind of problems, Old Testament violence, for instance, that's attributed to God? There's a lot of pathways that people have tried to take to get their heads around that, especially, you know, for believing Christians who believe that uh, God looks like Jesus and is a good God worth loving. What's, what's your, what's been your take on that? First of all, I've, I've covered that in two different books, The Lost World of Torah, we've talked about already, and that talks about some of the, um, some of the passages in the Torah, uh, but also The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, where we address the whole issue of what's called the conquest, I don't care for the terminology, but, uh, and in context with the problem of evil and things like that. So I've dealt with that in a couple of different books. Uh, the, I think that as we consider those issues, uh, lots of times our, our problems are that we don't really understand what's going on in the cultural background of those texts. And therefore, we are misunderstanding what the issues are. Sometimes that comes into play. Uh, other times, uh, we're trying to um, hold God accountable. And I just have principled objections to that. It's not our job to hold God accountable. It's not our job to tell God what he should do or shouldn't do, uh, or how he goofed up, or how he could have thought better. Uh, we always have this thing that we think we can out-God God. And I think that's a very dangerous uh, mentality to hold, and I try to avoid it. Uh, so I'm inclined, call me naive, but I'm inclined to give God the benefit of the doubt. I'm inclined to, to a default that says, you know, God is the one who, who will do what is right. Will not the God of the universe do what is right? Yes, he will. Will I be able to understand how it is right or how to explain it? It's not my job to vindicate him. Okay, and he doesn't need my help. Um, so if if we have problems with some of those passages, number one, we need to look more carefully at the cultural to see if we're understanding them well. Number two, we have to ask our questions about, um, do you really think that you're in a position to stand in judgment on God? And so I know those things don't don't satisfy a skeptic, but likewise, I don't feel it's my job to satisfy skeptics. It seems that many of them are insatiably unsatisfiable. And so in that sense, I don't see that as, as a job that I undertake. Um, so those are the pathways I follow, culturally, theologically. I, I guess I, I can I have understanding for people who say, you know, it's kind of like if you went on a date some, with someone, they say, hey, I just want to let you know, I, I've committed genocide in the past. Like, I don't, I don't do it anymore. That's not my thing anymore. Um, 
but and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not especially like sorry that I did it or like, I'm not saying I shouldn't have done it, but just like, that's what I did in the past. That's, that's not what I do anymore. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, a red flag, understandably. So I think it's, and I also think that God made us to not check our brains in at the door concerning such things too, right? I mean, the reason that we decide that God's worth following because there's something in us that's able to identify the goodness of God, right? And that's that, it's that same thing that's identifying these things kind of raise red flags for us. Well, if, if anyone were to read my ancient, uh, the lost world of the Israelite conquest, they would not in any sense get the idea that I was checking my brain at the door. Uh, it's a very deep, detailed technical study. And one of the things that comes out of that is to insist that what's happening in, in the land of Israel, as Joshua and the Israelites come in, is not anything like what we would call genocide. That's a total mislabeling of what's going on there. But, you know, you can say that and people say, well, how? And I have to say, read the book, because there's a zillion points to try to support that and sort it out. Sure. It's interesting today that lots of people have these big, important questions and they want a three line answer. I'm sorry, you've got to read a book or two or three. Yeah, yeah. I And uh, so I appreciate that. That's the answer. I think that I think that when some people hear who am I to question God, they hear. I'm checking my brain and at the door and I don't think that's what you're doing. No, and and in fact, I know, well, you know, reading, reading this, the new book and reading the lost world of the flood, you know? And so, I mean, part of the answer is like, did it even happen? Like, did God actually kill the entire earth and save just this family in a boat? Or was there something literally going on there that was, you know, that there was another point to that story. I think that that's worth considering and helpful in those questions. Well, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, uh, you, you can't really sort these things out and start to answer the big theological questions until you understand the text literarily. And that takes hard work and it takes penetrating the culture. It takes a little bit of understanding of uh, ancient literatures and how they worked. And so it's it's anything but checking your brain at the door. OK, here's my last ask the old Old Testament scholar question. <clears throat> what? What is the earliest Old Testament figure that we have historic reference for? I, I worded that really poorly. Like, who do most scholars agree? Like, yeah, we've got te- we've got evidence that this person existed. And then my question is, to what extent would it matter? Like, if we found out tomorrow that Moses was an historical figure, can we pack in the faith and just make this an academic pursuit, or w- would it matter? Well, on the first question, it really depends what criteria you use. Uh, some people have said, unless I can find them historically attested in contemporary documents from the ancient world, I will not believe they exist. Uh, that's a fairly narrow view toward what constitutes proof and what are decent criteria. But people who use that would say, well, the earliest we have any biblical characters attested that we know from the Bible that we have in contemporary records come from the ninth century BC. And we have people like Omri, uh, king of the Northern Kingdom, Israel. Um, and so we have, we have those texts and those we know they existed. Uh, again, that's nice that we have those attested and that really affirms some important things to us. But that, 
because of the limited nature of our evidence, uh, it's difficult to make that just stand on its own. You know, to what extent are we willing to uh, take the biblical record as having some level of credibility? Uh, understanding that it's literarily and theologically couched, I, I get all that, I talk about that all the time, but do we have reason to think that anybody who's not showing up in the monuments or the inscriptions is made up? And I think that would be a silly criteria to apply. Um, so I, I don't think that that covers us. If I were the other way, um, what characters in the Old Testament do we have strong evidence and reason to believe did not exist? Okay, just turn it around. Um, and, and why? What evidence would we bring to say they did not exist? Well, if you're going to answer that, you'd have to answer it on the basis of literary qualities, genres, and how they write about people in the ancient world. You'd have to ask questions about how often do they make up legendary characters in the ancient world, in ancient literature? Now, if, if you can basically say, well, they don't usually do that. Well, some people think some characters are and some characters aren't, but you know, people like Gilgamesh, uh, they're attested in royal inscriptions and, and things of that sort. So even though you might doubt all the stuff that it says about Gilgamesh in the Gilgamesh epic, he existed. How much do they make people up? Well, that's an interesting conversation. And again, different people would have different ideas. But in, on, on the main, it seems that they are most likely to create stories and collective memory around characters who really did exist. And the, through the stories, you might not hardly recognize them anymore, but, but they exist. We do the same thing with people like Robin Hood and arguably King Arthur and things of, of that sort. So I'd be more inclined to say that the default is that there probably was some kind of historical correlation uh, with a character who was a real person in the real past. How much they're reflected in the literature around them, those are other conversations to have. So it really depends how you ask the question and what you're looking at is the kind of evidence that you use. So in other words, there was a St. Patrick. He probably didn't drive snakes out of Ireland, though. <laughs> yeah. Well... Dr. Walton, this has been a real treat for me. I've wanted to talk with you for a long time, and I was really excited when the book came out. And for those listening, again, the, the title of the new book is Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. He'll hold up his copy. I'll hold up mine. There we go. Both screens. Yeah. And I think, it, I think it's coming out next month. Is that right? April 23? Uh, it's launching on Amazon the end of next month. So Okay. Um, but of course, it's in the IVP warehouse now, and people could order it from IVP. We got real life copies here in our hands. Somebody's got it. <laughs> well, thanks, Dr. Walton, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Sure, Shane. Good conversation. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Remember, you can find all the show notes for this show and all shows at shaneblackshear.com. Oh, and hey, have you ever thought about starting your very own podcast? I bet you have. And I think you should do it. In fact, I've created a course just for you to teach you everything that I've learned over 
the last couple of years producing seminary dropout. So if you're interested in podcasting and want to learn how, go check out my course. You can go there by typing in podcastingforeveryone.org. And you can get a special discount by typing in the discount code seminary dropout, all one word. That'll give you 25% off. So go check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Thanks to those that left ratings and reviews on iTunes this week. Remember, that keeps the show front and center. Also, remember, you can find me on Twitter at, at @beardonabike. That's at Beard on a Bike. Also, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash Shane Blackshear123. And remember that Seminary Dropout is listener supported. You can visit supportseminarydropout.com and press become a patron. Remember, this music you're listening to right now is by D.L. Rossi. You can find him online on iTunes and at dlrossi.com. All right. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Love you. Take care. Yeah, my best. I owe.